Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Matt Van Wyk, brewmaster and co-founder at Ale Song Brewing and Blending in Eugene, Oregon. Matt, I am excited to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Jensen. Thanks for having me. All right. I know we're going to talk beer a little bit, something we both love. We'll talk barrels a little bit. We're going to talk fermentation a little bit, but we always like to start kind of with a little bit of that origin, your background, and you were born in Wilton, Iowa. For everybody who doesn't know where Wilton, Iowa is, tell us where that is and a little bit about kind of those early years growing up in a place like Wilton, Iowa. Yeah, so uh, probably most people don't know where Wilton, Iowa is. It's a small town of about probably 2,500, 3,000 people in eastern Iowa. And uh, I grew up uh, there and also went to college in that area. And, you know, it was it was really the um, quintessential Midwest small town sort of upbringing where everyone knew everyone. Um, you know, there wasn't too much worldly things going on because not many people left and there you know, just rural America, um, good people, uh, good place to, to raise your family and go to school, good, good Midwestern values, I suppose. So, um, yeah, that was, that was it. I didn't get too far from home, uh, in my younger days. Um, but it was a, it was a good place to be. Yeah. I have lots of connections with I my uncle's own restaurants and Ames. That's where I started my career. I went to the DMAC, as it was called when I was there, the Des Moines Area Community College Culinary Program. I think they have a fancier name like the, the Des Moines Culinary Institute or the Iowa Culinary Institute. But uh, yeah, it was, very, it, was, it was a very cool time for me because, you know, coming out of high school, I spent a lot of time, you know, partying. And that's a good place to be if you want to party in restaurants. Ames, where Iowa State is, Iowa City where uh, the University of Iowa is, and uh, I learned a lot. Now, there's something interesting that, that you wrote uh, about yourself. You ju- grew up watching Julia Child, Jacques Pan, Martin Yan. So clearly food was something interesting to you early on, and you connected them through, you know, through these television shows. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, um, l- unlike me, any of your other guests who have worked in professional kitchens, I, I don't really have any background in that other than I've worked in some brew pubs in my brewing career. And, and so been around some kitchens, but, you know, haven't been employed in that way. But I think from early on, I've always, always had a love for making food. And it came from those days when, uh, you know, we didn't have cable, we were too poor for that. And so, um, and TV was different back then, of course, but, um, on, on public television, you got some of those shows with Julia Child and, and some of the other people you mentioned. Um, and I, I would spend Saturday afternoon watching cooking shows and I was just enthralled by that. And, uh, you know, it didn't come from um, uh, a whole bunch of um, cooking fancy food. I was a kid at the time or my mother doing that. I mean, 
one of my, one of her specialties. She's a great cook, but you know, we were making things like tuna casserole and, and hot dog stew and things that you could feed. I have three brothers. So to feed four boys, um, uh, you just had to get the casserole out. So I wasn't exposed to things, you know, the finer foods, but I, I saw them on TV. And so that was kind of fun. And um, I guess why that's important to my brewing career is because I've always felt like when you make beer, you know, it's a food to me, beer is a food to me. And I, and I approach writing a recipe and creating a beer like, like you would in the kitchen. And by that, I mean, you take your ingredients, you know what they taste like, and you know how they work and interact together. And so you kind of plan it that way. And you, you make something that's pleasing for your guests. And, uh, and if it doesn't turn out great, you go back to the drawing board and try again. And but but when you hit it, you know, you're making someone happy with someone something you created. And I have a feeling that's what that's cooks and chefs do. And uh, I've always felt that sort of satisfaction when I'm making beer. I think I'm very interested to to unpack a little bit of what you're saying of the idea of being really interested in those those food television shows because maybe it, it showed you something that was in scarcity where you were because food was more it's more nourishing to the body than it is a, an intellectual or an experiential endeavor potentially and I think that's very interesting because a lot of food is grown in Iowa yet the food culture has gone light years from from even the time that I was just there. It, it was very interesting for me to kind of reconcile that as I worked at the restaurants. And I'm interested in, in maybe how that informed you a little bit, almost the, a little bit of the scarcity of, of the food culture made you really, really inspired by it. Do you, do you see any of that connection when you reflect what? on it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it did take reflection on it because when you're in the middle of it, when you're a kid growing up, or even when you get into, to, you know, college years and, and become an adult, um, you may not think about it, but that's probably exactly what it was. There weren't, there weren't things like that. So, so when you watch that show and, and, and they're, you know, uh, sitting there deboning a duck or something, you're like, wow, this is not something that happens normally in my household or that I've been in a restaurant scene and, and you, it intrigues you. And so I think there was always some of that. And so I've always been pretty adventurous with, with food. I eat everything. And part of it was because, you know, I wasn't exposed to that. Um, my, my now current wife, um, who I met when I was in college, her family's from the East coast. Her dad was a doctor and they had traveled to Germany and Japan and, and were much more adventurous in food than me. And so, I mean, I had never had crab, lobster, even artichokes, which I would never think as a luxury item you know I was probably 25 before I ever had an artichoke and I'm like this is kind of a cool food and uh so anytime anytime those things are put in front of me I think it probably is just a, a seeking out of like I like to discover new things and in food it's really cool um just whether it be flavors or or a new type of food or something um and the same went with when I got a passion for beer and started making beer at home and then making beer professionally is I sought out new styles just because I wanted to I wanted to seek out new flavors. And as you can imagine in, in Iowa and especially in a college town, you didn't see in the nineties, you didn't see a whole lot of interesting beer styles. It was natty lights. Right. And so I was always looking for something new and adventurous in my flavor palette. So important. I remember the dirty thirties and, and the bush lights of, uh, of those formative years early on in the restaurants I remember actually going to the Rock Bottom Brewery in Des Moines, Iowa was the first time I met a brewer. 
I was like, holy shit, there's a person who makes this beer, right? Because I didn't, I didn't make the correlation that humans make beer. I thought that was, that was super interesting and, uh, and I was hooked. And then I, you go from, you know, trying this beer and go, okay, I have to drink all the beers now. Well, I went to old Chicago all the time and I drank those around the world stuff. And I talk about that sometimes as you and I get to travel around the country and speak at beer festivals and you and I have done collaboration beers and it's all highfalutin and and sometimes i just try and remember and let people know like hey my education started at the very rock bottom literally and figuratively so i i don't begrudge anybody else because they don't know what i know today i'm just excited when people are willing to take a chance on something and be adventurous like you were with food and then now i'm with beer so i'm very much like just bring people into that community don't judge them because they don't know what you know yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have those same kind of excitements in, in my current um, uh, job at Alesong Brewing and Blending because we're doing all barrel-aged beers, you know, some sour, some not. But there's people who walk in the door and they think they don't like beer, um, but it's because they may not like IPA or they may not like the light lager that was given to them. And so I, I get a thrill every day of, of, of introducing people to these new flavors, sour beers, fruited beers, oak beers, um, and their eyes just light up. So you know, I, I'd never probably put this all together until you sort of laid this, these questions out in front of me, but it, it does, uh, you know, my food, uh, sort of exploration has really just went and parallel right into what I've done with beer. All right. So I want to take a complete departure from everything delicious we're talking about to something I think is really important. I'm always fascinated how we find our way in and out of any industry of a passion of finding our purpose. And so I want you to take us back because you were a teacher for six years. You were in a completely different path. And I'm very fascinated in that. And so could you tell us a little bit about kind of that time and, and then maybe how, how it was that you actually transitioned to something very, very different as far as a life path goes? Yeah, I, I never, I never set out uh, to be a brewer. I was, I was a, uh, uh, got a teaching degree, ended up eventually getting my master's in teaching, and, and I was teaching um, science after college to middle schoolers in the suburbs of Chicago, um, middle school for four years, and then I transferred to the high school. So I spent six years doing that, like I said, two degrees, and I had no thought that I would, that I would be a professional brewer or, you know, make my livelihood this way. Um, but, you know, the best, best laid plans don't always uh, go where you want. Um, Basically, I was um, starting to uh, homebrew a little bit with a friend that I worked with, um, but I was also starting to see, you know, there was a few craft beers coming into some of these bars, but mainly it was export. So you had your Guinness and Bass and Harp and, and a few things that were a little more flavorful than the, the Dirty 30 you mentioned and the, the Natty Lights and Bush Lights and things. And uh, so I started, I mean, I really got into Guinness and just anything that had more flavor. Um, but the biggest thing was once I started homebrewing, I made the connection with fermentation and science. I think, you know, just like you, I, I didn't know that people made beer because, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I don't think people did make beer except for Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada. It was a bunch of machines otherwise um, until the craft brewing thing started and then people were making beer. And, and I realized that all this science I'd been kind of studying and then eventually teaching had a direct correlation with fermentation, you know, uh, the biology and the chemistry of it. And so I think that's where I really got a hook. And so I enjoyed homebrewing more, which I didn't do for very long. It was like, 
I don't know, 15, 20 batches is all that I did. Um, but it was a fun hobby. And uh, the way it turned into a career was a little strange in that um, my brother uh, worked across the street from this little brew pub in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And that's a straight west of, of um, Chicago. And uh, I was living near there when I was teaching. And uh, we went in and had lunch. And he introduced me to the brewer because he knew him. And uh, I just told the guy, listen, I have... I have summer break, spring break, you know, winter break. I've got all these, this time off from my job and uh, I'd love to see how a professional brewer does it and how it's different than a, than a home brewer. And luckily he said yes and come on in. And so I spent, you know, some, a little bit of time helping him and it was just washing kegs and hucking grain bags and stuff like that. and Just learning how to make beer. Um, but he, he taught me everything he knew and, you know, I traded a, a, he gave me a little beer at the bar growler to go or, or lunch. And, uh, I was having the time of my life, um, because it was just hobby and, and I, I didn't have to deal with like a real job with that. So anyway, that went on for about a year. And, and basically he said, you know, you're working harder than anyone who's employed here and, and, uh, you're just volunteering. How would you like a job? Well, luckily for me, I didn't have a lot of expenses. I have a very supportive wife and I had that very supportive wife at the time who said, you know what, just go for it and, and try it. And I've tried to live my life and not have regrets. You never want to get to that point where you're an aged person and wish you had tried something. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And so I went from a low salary as a teacher and uh, the most he could pay me was $8 an hour. Um, and I did a little restaurant management too, to make it a 40 hour work week job. But suddenly I was doing something that was like a hobby and they were paying me money for it, which I just, at the time I thought was incredible. And so I thought I'll do this for a couple of years. I'll see how the other half lives, you know, in the business world. And then I'll go back to teaching because that's, that's a nice job, nice career. Get to retire early with a pension. Um, and that was 2001 when I made that decision. And um, we're almost 20 years past that. And here I am uh, working in the beer industry still. You so made the it. right decision, right? I, I did. I did. I'm no regrets at all. Um, it's, it's, uh, provided for my family. It's been a great career, um, met great people and traveled to great places. So yes, very much so. Uh, tell us the brewer's name. So his name Brewing. Mike Engelke, and he's still a brewer back in Chicago. Great guy. And, and like I said, luckily he said yes at that time. Um, and just kind of, he, he'd only been in it a couple of years at that point. So he's probably between 20 and 25 years as a brewer and, um, was really instrumental in giving me that first step in the industry. What's a, what's a takeaway? What's an ism that Mike Engelkey passed on to you or something from those early days that you still find yourself doing or saying uh, well, for better, for better or worse? He's got a good one that I always think of and, and he'd probably kill me for saying it, but, uh, and I'm no longer an hourly employee, so it really does. I don't, I don't uh, follow his lead, but he would always say, remember, always crap on the clock. <laughs> You'd make sure that, uh, Hey, you're here at work, do what you got to do here at work. And, uh, I think what he really meant is don't waste any time at home. I hear that. He's, uh, it was the nineties brew pub model, man. That, that's, that's, uh, that was part of the allure of it was that like us in restaurants, that band uh, of, of misfits, the Island of misfit toys, uh, oh, it and was. also some of that thinking led to the the epic downfall of it as well. So it's very, it pulls in both directions. Absolutely, yes. Okay, well, going from the brew pub model, 
getting your teeth cut with Mike Unglecki at Glen Ellen Brewing as a second career. Very interesting. Now you're doing some, some next level stuff. The accolades, all those things are well, well deserved. I was really interested in, and we always like to play a little best served on ice game of barrels. Being somebody who spends a lot of time with their head, their schnoz in a barrel, want to play a little game called over a barrel. I'm just interested and fascinated in ingredients, flavors, techniques. And when I think about a barrel, and this is something you have talked about quite a bit, and I, I always perk up when I hear you talking about it, that a barrel is an ingredient. So I really want to just pick your brain a little bit on your approach because you hear barrel-aged beer. It's almost a catch-all term, and I think there's a lot of nuance to it that I think just beer, beer nerds in general, but also some brewers could, could glean some, some little nuggets from. So I want to ask you a couple questions about barrels. First, you, you mentioned it already. You're using both kind of mixed fermentation and you're doing clean beers. So you got to have the wild beers, the clean beers. I'm just interested in the difference potentially in the way that you're approaching the barrels that you're using. Is it different barrels? Is it different amounts of time? Give us some context there when you're thinking about the two different lanes, which can be very, very different in your right. barrel-aged beers. Right. Yes. Uh, good Good question, Broad. I'll try to make it concise as I can. Yeah, basically, we have two threads of beers. The clean beers, which consist of all the spirits barrels, um, mostly bourbon, but we use different whiskeys. We might use tequila, rum, gin. Um, and then you've got the wild uh, side with the mixed culture. And we use the barrels for different reasons. Um, most of the time, all the barrels I consider as one of the ingredients. And so it's, it's a way to um, season your beers and add layers of complexity. But the, the spirits barrel aged beers are really mostly used for that. And, and what you're trying to do is layer on flavors from the barrel, not only from the spirit that was in it, the bourbon, but also flavors that come from oak. And it's the same flavors that, that get into the bourbon you're tasting, vanillins, coconut, um, caramel, um, cinnamon, those things come from oak. And because the wood's charred um, and because it's been opened up, you know, by that charring process, that's going to get into the beer. Um, and when you're making those choices of what barrels to use, you think about the spirit, where the, you know, the distillery it came from, what you like in those flavors, um, how long it was aged in those barrels too. You know, a lot of times you think, well, give me a 23 year Pappy Van Winkle barrel and that might be great. I don't know. I've never used one, but I know that the, that the bourbon is great. Um, but also remember the Pappy Van Winkle has extracted a lot of those flavors out of the barrel. So I've talked to a lot of brewers who say that they would rather use like a five to 10 year old aged bourbon because it's just got more of the oak flavor in it that can, that can be extracted by your beer. So, so the main reason you use spirits barrels is to get flavors from that spirit and the oak. Conversely with, um, with uh, wine barrels, a lot of times you're getting those and they're called, they're deemed oak neutral by the winemaker, meaning they have extracted the oak tannins and the things they want in their wine, it's already in the wine. And um, you can still get some tannins and some oak type flavors, um, but you need to leave your beer in there, you know, a little longer. What you're really using those barrels for is housing of the organisms. The yeast, the wild yeast, Britannomyces, um, the bacteria, lactobacillus, and if you're using Pediococcus, or whatever strains of those you have, that's where they're living and their, their populations are growing. So you may or may not steam the barrel or, you know, clean it out really well. You may just can continue to use it, you know, give it a rinse out of any dead yeast cells and then use it again. And then you've got something sort of akin to, um, 
to sort of a sourdough starter where you keep that same organism alive and do its thing. And that helps build consistency. And as your population of organisms inside the barrel grows, you know, maybe it gets sour and, and, and develops faster or stronger. Um, and that's something you have to control too, but you're really using it as a, as a hotel for all those organisms rather than a lot of flavor. Now that changes a little bit if you get some port barrels or, or some other sort of stronger sort of, um, wine derived you know brandies and things like that you can get some flavors from that liquor but um those are kind of the, the general ways you would use spirits barrels versus wine barrels and you think then having these two different lanes their their output is very different right those two styles of beer the potential end product are very very different do you feel that those are the two lanes that you guys really went into because you felt like it was going to give you that opportunity for mastery of barrels it seems like if you know and understand how to use wood, I like that you said the word seasoned, right? Still thinking of those culinary terms. So I love that. Do you think about it in that way where you said, hey, these are two styles of beer that the end consumer might even be different potentially, but we're going to just live in the space of being experts when it comes to the use of barrels. Right. And, and that's your, you hit the nail on the head. That's what we do try to do at Ale Song. You know, a lot of people, if they've had one of our beers or two of our beers, maybe you've had a, a sour cherry beer or something that was aged in French Oak and you're like, Oh, they make those sour beers and they pin us as that or farmhouse beers or something like that. Because there are a lot of people in our country making great farmhouse sour and uh, mixed culture beers. And that's, that's the main thing they do in their barrel program. Um, and so we try not to be pinned to that. We've got a pretty robust, um, uh, spirits barrel age program and we're doing both of those lanes and it was because of what you just said is we want to explore how barrels affect beer and how we can best use oak and other barrel types in general not just sour and wild beers um, and because both of them the two reasons one uh, both of them are we enjoy drinking them we kind of geek out about them because we like how they taste and we also like the uh, challenge of making these two different strains of beers and and certainly it's um it's hard to, um, you know, perfect these both at the same time, but, but we're trying, we're, we're, uh, we're up to the challenge. Makes sense to me. I like the approach. All right, we have a high level kind of the vision for what you're looking to, to accomplish. Let's get into the dirt a little bit on some of the more practical things you're thinking about when you're managing that. So reusing barrels, there's a lot you mentioned kind of housing the microorganisms, Solera is something I definitely want you to just touch on a little bit. Reusing those barrels, thinking about how many times you're pushing beer through those. Talk to us a little bit about that as far as that management process of the barrels themselves. Right. So, so our type of brewing is way different because we do have to manage all these little fermenters. And that's what they are. They're little 50 and 60 gallon fermenters. And each one of them has its own little environment. Um, but, but stepping back and talking about the two threads again, spirits barrels we typically use once. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is... Um, uh, you're extracting those whiskey bourbon flavors out of there and then they go into the beer. And so if you try to put another beer in that barrel, you're going to get a much lower impact on the, the whiskey bourbon flavor. It's there and you can age it longer and you can use a lower impact beer, you know, maybe a, an amber ale versus a imperial stout, but you're just not getting as much. And the other reason is with that char inside, there's so many little spots for these organisms to live and possibly get a beer spoiler in there. And so you have a bigger chance for sort of those off flavors to arrive. So as a general rule, we use our spirits barrels once, unless we 
do transition some of those second use bourbon barrels to our sour program and maybe take a Flanders red, throw that in there and pick up some of those uh, caramely flavors from bourbon barrels. Um, so that's the exception. And then with our wine barrels, we just keep using those over and over because like I mentioned, we want that community of organisms in there to keep doing its thing. Um, and we're, don't have really flavors we've extracted anyway. So we've got a lot of tools uh, uh, in our brewery to, to do it well. That's one of the beauties of being an all barrel aged brewery is we focused our equipment on doing the best we could here rather than when it's just a little side project on your brewery. So we have a steamer so we can totally steam the barrels that helps for swelling and also for, um, for uh, killing any organisms you want to. So all of our bourbon barrels get steamed to make sure nothing is going to to be a beer spoiler. Um, we've got a pretty high intensity um, um, barrel cleaner. It's basically a pressure washer that's heated um, with propane tanks. And so um, that aqua tool can strip out everything and clean things well. So, so we have to really do a lot in, in taking care of the barrels and making sure um, they're in good shape to make the best beer possible. Um, and then the other thing I heard you mention was about Solera. And for those who don't know, that's sort of a method um, I believe, a, is it sherry production where you uh, take, you have it in barrels and you take a little bit out, but then you add the new back into it. So you've always got some of the original batch in there. Uh, and it works great for mixed culture fermentation beers because when you have these flavors that are tasting great, these acidic and funky flavors and some of the oak, and you want to continue that flavor on to next batch to next batch, just leave a little bit in there. Again, it's like the sourdough culture that you just use a little bit from before and those organisms uh, continue that consistent flavor. This is great. You said for the people that don't know about Slayer, what's funny about these games is I'm always just such a, a geek on research and learning new things. And then I hope everybody listening is as well. I always tell people like selfishly, the games are selfishly for me because I just want to learn from experts. So I think it's super fascinating and interesting the way that you're approaching barrels because of just how thoughtful it is. I mean, the, the level of curation and technique that goes into it, I think, is super great. You're not just tossing some fucking beer in a barrel and waiting two years and calling it good. I think uh, I like that, that there's that science meets art balance. So very important question here. You have a lot of pressure. The question is, does size matter? You need to answer this age old <laughs> question about barrels obviously that question has always been about barrels does size matter because you hear a lot about all kinds of different barrels and interesting too is that a barrel is also unit of measure of the amount of beer so just break down uh, kind of the size potentially what that means to those end beers yeah okay so um good lead in there um yeah, so a barrel is 31 gallons, but we put beer in barrels. One thing we try to do sometimes as we sit here and talk about this stuff is we sometimes call them casks or oaks. So you say, well, I've got 20 casks to fill. Um, and so that helps you not to confuse with that, that barrel, which is a measure of volume. Um, but size does matter, um, naturally. Um, when you have a 60-gallon you know, burgundy barrel that held wine, a 53-gallon barrel that held bourbon, um, but then you've got a lot of other sizes. Punch-in is one. Um, you can buy barrels that are, you know, two hectoliters, three hectoliters. They go up to the fooders, which you can get, you know, 90 to 120 barrel fooders. Um, you know, where you live, Cricket Stave has some pretty big fooders. Obviously, um, uh, New Belgium is the biggest oak program in the country. And so 
you know, go to Colorado and you'll see all kinds of large format tanks. And the reason it matters is because the beers that we're making in our wild and sour program are alive. The yeast is in there. Um, they're maturing in the barrel as they also mature in the bottle. And so what you're tasting at fermentation time is going to be different than when you sell the bottle. And it's going to be different if you save it for a little bit, which, you know, for those who don't drink a lot of these beers, they have a great shelf life and you don't have to drink them in two or three weeks and, and they go bad. They, they develop over time. So that development is happening in the barrel and there's all fermenters where you um, ferment the beer uh, are different size and shape and they have convection currents going on in them. And by that, I mean the, Liquid is moving, the yeast is moving, it's eating sugars and it's producing flavors. And the way that those organisms, the yeast and bacteria move in that vessel um, are going to affect how it tastes, the flavors that come from it. Um, and some of it is just personal preference, personal flavors. Um, some of it is speed. Sometimes it happens faster in others. Um, we've got these pretty sexy 20 hectoliter, um, which is about 600 gallons ovals that um, we have beer aging in and they're, they're nothing more than a very large barrel or a wooden tank and um, um, those um, beers have less surface area less less of the surface area to beer touching oak so that affects flavor pickup too because any tannins and oak flavors you're extracting are going to happen slower in that vessel um, so so we consider those things when we get to the point that we're ready to blend um, and that's the other you know part of our we're a brewery but we're also doing blending which means I take all these barrels and we have to thoughtfully put them together and the neat thing is we don't just take one batch and it goes all the way through our tanks and then our barrels and then goes into a bottle but we may be picking from this batch this batch this one's a little more sour this one is a little more fruity this one's got some funk to it. And so we can really orchestrate a different product than what we originally sought out to just by blending. And all that's affected by the different barrels and tanks we pull out of. Matt, I got to tell you, like, this, is, this is why I love doing this because it, this started out as a very intellectual game. I was very much like, I want to ask this dude some shit I'm interested in that, that I think is fascinating from a, from a very practical, technical standpoint and then you're you're it's an orchestra and there's a dance of yeast and it's moving around and it's flavor and they're sexy this and it's seasoned like i i love it because it just reflects the passion that you have and i think that's so important like that's that's the story i want to be told like that's truly what i want to drink and when i taste those those end products from people that take this level of of dedication and passion for it and that speak this way about something technical that they do. It's like, it's the fucking game. I think it's the best. Like, I you know, think it's, it's the best. It's crazy. Cause a lot of times people will tell you, if you're talking to a brewer, they'll, they'll tell you what's, you know, if you ask them what's the greatest thing about being a brewer or your job and they'll, they'll tell you something about the science that of the beer and the art and how it's a blend of the two. And usually, you know, your eyes just roll back and you go, yeah, whatever. That's a bunch of crap. But it really is. You nerd out about the science because that's how we kind of all got ourselves into it. But then, man, when you could be passionate about the art and, and what that comes down to is someone who, and, and I kind of alluded to this before, but same goes with the chef in the kitchen. You're making something that you're proud of that someone can enjoy. And when someone looks at you and goes, oh my God, 
you feel good. That's like a pat on the back where they, they're like, you made this with your own two hands. It feels good. And so that's the art part of it. And we get to do that every day with blending and with the different beers we make. And so I, I, I tend to geek out less on the science and just get more into the, the flavors and the art of it. That's, that's the unlock. The more we can connect people within our organization, within our community, within the, the more broad beer community, food community, hospitality community, like that's the unlock. That's the connection that people want. Cause otherwise uh, the liquid is commoditized, right? It's, it's not what's actually special. It's always going to be the people that are special. And I think if you have a great product and you have great people and a great story, like that's, that's it. Like that's as good as it gets. So I knew this was going to be a good game, started technical and ended with waxing poetic, which is exactly what I love to do. And thank you for giving us a little insight into barrels. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right. Let's get into some more people. Speaking of that, more segueing. So take us back again. Uh, you know, we talked about Wilt Nile a little bit, some of that upbringing. Let's go deep on some of the people that have had an impact on you. And let's start with the first person that really had a profound influence and impact on you. Tell us about that person. You know, um, in, until you ask me to answer some of these questions, I probably never reflected on this. Um, everyone loves their parents and whatnot, but I really, you know, didn't think about how much um, influence my dad had on me. But um, that's the first first person I thought of when you asked the question. Um, and and I think it's because I now I've I've been a business owner officially for four and a half years, um, even though I thought I never would. But I think part of it is now that I think in terms of being a business owner, which my dad was for a little while, um, he's kind of the one I look to as a pretty, pretty darn good role model um, as a person and and as a as a cog in in the workforce. Um, and he, and here's why. So basically, my dad uh, was was in the agriculture business, very a few different things, farmer and this and that in in Iowa. And uh, wasn't around a whole lot, but it's because, you know, my mom made the decision to uh, stay at home with her and raise her four boys. So that was her job. And um, my dad had to bring home some money, which there wasn't very much, but he did the best he could. And when you work, you know, in the ag industry, when you're a farmer, you're up early and you're out late. And uh, so he wasn't there much. My mom raised this. And uh, but what I did notice is because I was from a small town, uh, you were in every sport, you were in every band, you just had to do it all because there weren't that many people. Um, anytime I had a football game, a basketball game, a band concert, whatever, even though my dad may not have been able to make them all, he was always racing in to, to, to see them um, and was doing his best to both bring in some money and, uh, and take care and see his, his kids. And so I just admire that because it's hard to have a career and to be a parent, I, I have two kids now, 16 and 14, and you're, you're pulled in both directions, especially if you own a business. Um, and so he was a hard worker who tried to burn the candle at both ends. And so, you know, I, I try to do that as well. What was your father's name? Is your father's name? Dave, Dave Van Wyck. And, and he is um, just getting retired. Well, here's the thing. He's retired. He just turns 70. And he just retired, um, but he still writes insurance and sells grass seed on the side. The, the guy won't stop working, I'm certain, but he also has to fund his uh, his toys now. So, uh, 
Dad, if you end up listening to this, I love you. And uh, you did a good job. Um, enjoy it down in Texas right now, I think is where they're at. That's really great. We, we've coined side hustle now. Uh, your dad knows a little something about side hustle. It's, it's, not a, it's not a new game. It's a new name, right? Yes, that's right. And clearly that hard work is something instilled in you. And I think that is such a fundamental thing I love about the Midwest is like hard work and like that dedication that is just so important and making that sacrifice to be able to build that family in the way that, that they could, I think is super important. So I love that that is the groundwork for kind of you as a professional, you as a father, I think it is always refreshing to hear. And we don't think about it a lot until you're in the position to now make some of those decisions. So it's great to reflect on that. That's what this is really all about. All right, move us forward in time a little bit from uh, that foundational fortitude you have from your father. Who's somebody else that really means something to you when you, when you reflect back on those people that have impacted you? You know, probably the next person is, is another man in my life, and, and it was my uh, father-in-law. Uh, he unfortunately passed away in 2012, but um, an amazing man um, because he was first, he was like the most fit person I know ever, um, rode his bike to work every day. He was a doctor, researcher, professor um, at the University of Iowa, where I met my wife uh, when I was in college, and uh, just an awesome man. And the reason I, I bring him up as an inspirational person is just because this is someone who, you know, I knew him in his fifties and sixties and he, he passed unfortunately when he was 68. Um, but always so curious, always trying to learn more. And, um, sometimes I can find myself getting lazy, like, especially in the age of Google where all the information you need is at your fingertips. And, uh, I, I admire him because he was always trying to learn stuff and he was fascinated when you brought him tidbits of something even like when uh i would bring beer home was, I, this was in the 90s and i was just getting into better beer and and still a teacher at the time um but we we'd travel back to their house and uh you know just bring these strange beers lambics and and other kind of beers from belgium or england and he loved all of them but he was always asking questions how they make that how they make that how they make that so i i think the bottom line is i think people um need to be lifelong learners and if you can always seek out knowledge that's a good trait to have especially if you have people that are there's this ebb and flow back and forth so the fact that you had an outlet somewhere to take your beer that you knew there was going to be questions asked and information gleaned and, and i think that's really really important sometimes if you're so siloed that you don't have people to share it with to learn from and to actually teach because you know, I, I don't think you know it until you can teach it. Clearly right. that was something you understood at the degree and that, that level of curiosity. I always talk about being the annoying kid in the front row going, why, why, why it's right. always served me well. Well, not always served me well. Sometimes it's got me punched in the mouth, but definitely served me pretty well. Uh, reflect on that a little bit and maybe more contemporary with a couple of your uh, business partners potentially is there still you seeking that kind of feedback loop yeah i think a lot of times there is especially when um you know in our position where we're, we're making all oak age beer some kind of barrel our beer goes into and so there's been a lot of people in our industry who have sort of looked to us um you know myself and my two business partners 
as the barrel aging experts, you know, whether it's being asked to talk at, um, at, a, at a conference or, or teach someone something or help someone with a problem they've got in their brewery and their barrel program. Um, and it's challenging because, um, you know, a lot of times you do, there's some magic in the barrel. You put it in, it happens this, that, but you don't know exactly what was going on in that barrel. You didn't see it. You can't talk to the yeast um, and you have to rely on your knowledge. And, and so what I've found in just today, I was, I was looking up, uh, I won't get too far into it cause it'll really, we'll get on a geeky rabbit hole, but THP, I was, I, it's an off flavor that's produced by yeast and, and I was trying to learn more about it. So I didn't want to be asked a question by someone and, and not have the answer. You know, I, I wanted to know more and what that's going to do is one, not make me look stupid, but also going to help out our beers and, 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 eventually our livelihood and, and the things that we're making. So, um, yeah, just constantly wanting to know more and, and being the person who people can go to is important. All right. No rabbit hole, but THP, do you, do you get Captain Crunch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I get more Cheerio than Captain Crunch. Yes. Some people, and maybe a little nuttiness too. Yeah. I am with you all the way. I, I, I love that. I love that we've gotten both fathers in. So not only are you bringing value to us, respecting where we came from, taking the tutelage we've been given through our entire lives and trying to reform it into our own. You were also scoring points. We got wife, we got both fathers. So you're doing a good job as your family listens to this, feeling the love and respect. You're winning. Absolutely. So, and your father-in-law's name and then your two partners' name, since we mentioned right. them. So, so uh, John Stokes is my father-in-law. Um, and uh, my two business partners are Doug and Brian Coombs. The Coombs boys. All right. Excellent. I want to always have everyone. There's something about it. When you hear your name mentioned, even though this podcast is quote unquote about you, we're spending more time talking about everybody except you. And that's kind of the point is like, we're, we're the, we're the, the accumulation of all of the people that have had an impact on us. Uh, even when we're creating a product that is our own, it is still a reflection of our journey, our experience. So uh, I think it's really great. All right. Always want to talk about so many unsung hospitality heroes, so many people that deserve so much credit. Don't get the acknowledgement for one reason or another. I know those people are so important to you. I know there was somebody very specific. I love this story. I'm excited we're going to tell this story because of how intermingled your guys' relationship is over time. And I'm just throwing stuff out there to kind of cliffhanger people. But tell us about your one of your unsung hospitality heroes. Yeah, so this person is Andrew Mason, and um, he's he's a friend, a former coworker, um, and uh, amazingly a former student too. I've known the young man since he was, uh, she's probably twelve or thirteen, somewhere in that range, because he was in my second ever class when I was a teacher. Um, and he was in my science class, and when I moved to um, the high school in that same district, he took my astronomy class, and so I knew him pretty well. And it just so happens that he went to college in Chicago, got a film degree, decided that he wasn't going to move to the West Coast to pursue that. So he called me up and he said, uh, hey, I, maybe I want to be a brewer. Um, you got a job for me? And luckily, my assistant had just left. This was, I was working at a place called Flossmore Station in south suburb of Chicago. And uh, I brought him on and he was my assistant from 
believe, 05 to 09. And then uh, he left there and worked for a couple other breweries, uh, namely Three Floyds in Munster, Indiana, and also um, a place called Solomoth in Naperville, Illinois, uh, after I moved out to Oregon. So that's Andrew. Man, this is, this is so good. So, so good. Just here's an interesting thing. I talk about this within hospitality and, and it reflects a little bit of, of what I love about this. We're bridge burners. Like you so often in, in the hospitality industry and in restaurants and breweries, you just, you flame out and it's a really tough industry and you're just grinding a lot. And so when something ends in that, it ends badly a lot. And I feel like it's the more common story. So I love the fact that there's somebody who you've known since they were 12 or 13 years old. And when you're in the industry for a lot of years, it's really hard. Like the, the, the pool of people that you have trust and confidence and long-term relationships with shrinks and shrinks and shrinks a lot of times. I love that you've kept in contact with somebody since they were 13 years old. Just that I think is really, really amazing and something people need to think about. And I like that both of you guys went in completely different directions and then found yourselves together again. And talk a little bit about that, like what that means to be able to see somebody from punk kid to like prolific brewer and, and having been a part of that in different ways along that journey. Yeah. And you know, what I didn't mention there is, um, you know, Andrew and, and actually his dad take, take, uh, credit for me becoming a brewer um back when he was in middle school and uh and the reason that is is because sort of a long story but basically there was a science fair project that went awry and it had to do with a potato gun and, and no one got hurt but it was close and uh his parents were aghast and, and i kind of became friends with them due to this little incident with young andrew the, the punk kid and uh because I became friends with them, had dinner at their house, um, uh, started kind of homebrewing. I wasn't homebrewing at that time, actually. I was still, you know, still a teacher. And uh, they invited me over to make beer, and, and I had some curiosity. So I brewed a couple of batches with Andrew's dad, and um, that's where some, some beer relationship happened and um, got to know them well. And that's kind of another reason we stayed close together others still knew each other and he came to talk to me um but it was good because we formed that relationship i mean that it seems like adult kid relationship but i was probably i think i'm 10 years older than him so i was 23 he was 13 something like that but we stayed friends as he went off to college and then uh, kind of came back together and and you know andrew's the type of person like he also is that type of uh sort of lifelong learner he's, he's a pretty smart kid pretty sharp kid and uh and always was but he's always looking to to know more and, and learn how something works he, he's the type of person that would take something apart just to see how it works and so that's sort of uh knowledge seekers cool to me um but it was cool to get a more of a relationship with that as i worked with him because um you know we were both adults at that time he was done with college and i was a young adult and so uh so we became close friends and i just realized what a good person he was first of all and and what a good um uh worker he was too i mean i i owe a lot of the success in my brewing you know a lot of times the the head brewer gets all the credit um just like a chef might in a kitchen but we know that we are um it's more important the people that are working with you and for you because they're doing all the hard work and uh not getting the credit and so he's the type of person who slogged in the trenches uh 
uh, without getting much credit, but, but I'm saying it right now on a national podcast that, uh, that Andrew was important for me winning some awards back in the day or us winning some awards back in the day and shaping me as a, a, a brewer that I am. I think um, I do owe a lot to him for that. I'm so excited to talk to Andrew. A couple of reasons. One, this potato gun story. I'm really interested to see what the 13 year old kid thought of that uh, epic story. And also I'm just fascinated with mentorship in both directions, what it means to be a mentor, what it means to be mentored, how now Andrew potentially is taking things that he learned from you. Like you take a couple things maybe away from Mike Engelkey and are applying them and recreating them as well. I think that's the thing about it is, is some of the teachings are rigid. You know, there, there's some things that are very technical. However, everything is mostly fluid and adaptable. And the more that we adapt things that we learn, the more we make them our own and the more that we evolve them and turn them into the next thing. I'm excited to see what Andrew has to say and think about that. So appreciate you really highlighting how important the team is and how those that, that really prop us up to be able to do what we do is so, so important. And that's what this show is all about. I want to leave everybody as we always do with some words to live by, something to take out in the world and make it a better place. You say two things that I love. You say love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life as well as be kind to others. Both very classic. They seem like they go without saying yet, man, anything that goes without saying, you need to say it again and again and again and again and again. And so I love that you threw this out at us. Tell us what they mean to you and how you kind of take them with you in your day to day. Yeah. You know, these aren't new concepts. People say them all the time. So I, I wasn't being real original on those, but, um, but I truly do live by it. I'm so fortunate to have a career that is sort of a hobby turn career and, and not everyone gets a chance to do that. Although I would say you should think about it. Um, so find something that you're passionate about. So find something that you're good at, find something that you enjoy doing every day. And if someone will give you a paycheck for it, do it. Don't, don't be hesitant or don't think you have to do what people say you do or what, you know, what gives you a million dollars. Cause in the end it's about your, your happiness and, and, we spend so much time at work, you might as well enjoy what you do and then it doesn't become work, right? So that's just what I live by. And it's, it, I think it's the reason I became a brewer and got into this craft brewing industry. Um, and then the other one is just be kind. That, that is just like the rest of your life will fall into place if you be nice to people. We can, you know, we live in a pretty rough time right now where sure we've got a lot of things, but everyone's grumpy at each other. And if we can just, you don't even have to, like each other just be nice to each other and and that's going to go a long way in your business relationships and your personal relationships your coworker relationships so i'm i'm not always succeeding but i try yeah it's the it's the try i mean I, I think that's important if you stay grounded and tethered to that that you're always putting forth the effort towards it these are timeless philosophies yet still need to be reaffirmed every single day amongst us all Matt Van Wyke, my friend, so good talking to you. You brought a lot of value to your family, to the industry, and to everybody listening, and I am grateful. I really appreciate being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This was fun. Cheers. Matt really laid some nice groundwork for a lot of the people that have an impact on, a, on him throughout his life and career. 
And this was a really unique situation. Somebody he gave a shout out to as one of his unsung hospitality heroes. Andrew Mason was actually a student of his when he was in his nine to five career. And then they reconnected when they were on a path of brewing. Andrew, I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm trying to think of exactly how many years it's been now since I met Matt originally and I'm doing the quick mental math. So yeah, it's been almost 25 years. I think coming up on, it's like about 23. So um, yeah, I initially met Matt um, in a student teacher context. He was my eighth grade science teacher and it was his second year of teaching. Um, and the... Uh, and it was nearly his last year of teaching as well, because um, eighth grade is the big, you know, prestige year of when you have to do the um, old-fashioned uh, cardboard-backed science project, you know, big presentation in front of your whole class, whatever it was. And you know, the the more that we tell the story, and the farther the years go by, the fuzzier it gets, and maybe the details get exaggerated one way or the other, but um, somehow I convinced him that it would be a really cool idea if um, the potato guns that my dad and brother and I had been building and horsing around with would be a cool science project. And it, these weren't, you know, some like little, um, I don't know, homemade goofy thing. It was, it was pretty, pretty serious potato guns made out of um, inch and a half PVC with a big firing chamber. And I know some people used to use like hairspray to make those shoot and we always use propane. So it was, uh, they were pretty serious and you could shoot a potato, um, you know, 200 yards or more. So you yeah. convinced him that you're going to make a bazooka in school. I love it. The, I mean, that's not entirely how it was. It was more along the lines of me explaining, hey, my dad and brother and I are doing this cool thing with, with this potato gun. Is there, you think there's some way that I could turn this into a science project. And the way that he recalls it is basically saying, well, if your parents say it's okay, then I think that would be okay. And my parents seem to think that it was along the lines of, well, if your teacher says it's okay, then it's probably okay. And then apparently the two never met in the middle or I did a bad job of conveying that message. And so they both kind of, it was kind of a ask mom, ask dad kind of thing. And so he said it was going to be fine. So um, in true middle schooler fashion, um, I put off actually doing the science project until the last minute and they're gathering my data and, you know, putting my thesis together. And when I finally got around to trying to do it, I was feeling like a balloon, um, like a regular, you know, party balloon with propane and then measuring the circumference of the balloon and doing some quick math to figure out how much propane I was putting in the firing chamber. But when I, the weekend that I picked to do it um, was, I feel like it was somewhere around Thanksgiving time and it was extremely cold outside and it was so cold that I couldn't even get the thing to fire. Like, I don't know if I was getting the mixture wrong or what the story was, but I had no data. So I go back into school on Monday and tell Matt about this and I'm, you know, super disappointed about it. And he goes, well, you know, uh, you know, sometimes that happens with science. You try your experiment and it just doesn't work the way you have it. So you still have to present with all the stuff. So get the whole presentation together and, um, you know, like work on it for like a day. And then I came up with this idea of, well, since I didn't get to fire it outside, maybe 
I could fire it in the classroom um, and we could have like a demonstration about it. I could fire it into like a cardboard box and um, that would be really cool since, you know, I didn't get to make this work outside. And he kind of thinks about it and he's like, um, well, I guess that would be okay. Uh, we could, you know, figure out a way to do it. Our school's built out of like cinder block walls or whatever, and it, it wouldn't damage anything if we were shooting it into a cardboard box against concrete block. So bring my presentation in, do my, um, show my display with no data. And I'm really disappointed and nervous because everybody else has these whole thing, you know, whole science projects that worked and um, gets to the point where I'm going to do the presentation in front of the class and everybody's super excited because, you know, I'm going to shoot a potato gun in class and it's like four feet long and um, everybody puts on safety glasses and everybody goes to one side of the room. And I remember um, that we had a, uh, a special needs aide in our class and she's looking at him and she's a number of years older than Matt and she's looking at him and giving him this look like, are you, you sure that we're going to do this? Like, this is something that you're going to like let happen. So I tried to fire it in class and same thing, hit the, hit the, uh, the grill igniter and, and nothing happens. It clicks, nothing happens. I take the chamber off. I try to blow in it a little bit. Maybe I have too much propane click, nothing happens. So Matt kind of lets out the sigh of relief and he's like, okay, well that didn't work either. So let's move on to the next thing. So, um, I was raised in a very outdoor family and I was always treating this like it was a firearm. So I took the chamber off um, and he kept it in his classroom the whole day, but there's still a potato in the bottom of the gun because it doesn't come out unless you shoot it. So uh, this was sometime in the morning, nothing ever happens. Um, the potato gun sits in his classroom all day long. And then at the end of the day, I come to pick it up and I put it back together, uh, you know, screw the chamber back together and I'm leaving. And at the, the way that I remember the story happening, is um, the end of the day, the kids would just like sprint out of the school as fast as they could. And I'm by my locker and uh, I'm, you know, carrying this down the hallway, bell rings, everybody runs out, somebody bumps into the potato gun, hits the igniter button and it shoots a hole straight into the ceiling. And all the kids around me just hit the ground. And I'm laughing at this now, of course, but this is also 1997. So that's before any, you know, realities of, like terrors in high schools or middle schools are, are a part of daily life, but um, everybody hits the ground. There's lots of screaming. The woman who was my science teacher from the previous year, who I had a really great uh, relationship with walks by and she goes, she's kind of laughing and she's completely, um, you know, taken by surprise. And she goes, you are so busted. And, but she's trying to like hold this laughter in the entire time. So, um, Matt gets in obviously reams of trouble because he's a super young teacher and the Dean is of course assuming the worst. And I'm getting an extremely stern lecture from the Dean and the principal. And that led to, uh, you know, my parents being extremely apologetic and getting to know Matt a little bit outside of class, uh, outside of the school setting. And it had turned out that he had a little bit of a homebrewing interest with another teacher friend of his. And my dad had been homebrewing since I was about two. So it was something that I was around, but I wasn't super interested in it. I didn't start homebrewing until I was about 16. So not until I was in high school. And um, that just led to us being uh, family friends 
and um, we would talk on and off and I kept in touch with him a little bit throughout the years and then right at the end of college I had gone to school for um, for film and I had, uh, was studying cinematography and I had actually looked when I was still in high school I was looking uh, for a way to get into brewing but you can't really go do that in the U.S. when you're straight out of high school um, so I went to film school because that was another interest of mine and then right at the end of film school uh, right before I graduated um, I don't remember how I found out but I had been in touch with Matt and said hey if you ever need help um, he was working at Flossmore Station at that time and said, if you ever need help, uh, I'd, you know, this is something that I'm super interested in. I'd be, I'd love to come by. And shortly after that, he had said, you know, my, um, my assistant has kind of just stopped showing up to work. Um, nobody really knows what's going on with him. So if you want to come do some work here, I've got a spot for you. And uh, I just kind of fell into it and, and stuck with it from there. It's crazy how relationships form and then can last uh for just like behind the scenes look i i mute my microphone so you just don't hear me breathing on the other end but mm -hmm. just for everybody listening i was fucking laughing my ass off <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories that i think we've ever had on the show i'm just like playing it out i am also huge into uh, cinema and movies and so everything plays out in a movie in my head and I'm just seeing, especially the teacher, looking at Matt, the other teacher in the room, going, Are, you're, you're, you're kidding me, right? This can't be really happening. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, the, you know, the, the fallout from that, I remember um, the dean saying stuff like, you know, in some states, these are, are, are legal. And me being, you know, in middle school, not knowing just to shut up and listen to him vent, I said, you know, I don't think they're illegal in Illinois. Like... <laughs> not not really uh adding to my case or making anything better <laughs> not getting the point they're trying to make yeah and then um we very quickly started uh matt and i kept referring to it as a potato accelerator not as potato gun and then um i think ever since uh, within his colleagues at the school he immediately was potato boy then and forever else and then um he actually followed me to the high school and was teaching earth science and astronomy. And I had him again as an astronomy teacher um, in high school, just to get that ECA because uh, even though it, I'm sure that I was the one that owed him somehow, it, it, we, we were pretty informal at that point. So yeah, it was, uh, although I, ve I very much love astronomy and it's a, it's a passion of mine, uh, that class was, um, I don't know if we would say graded on a curve, but nobody was worried about what my grade was going to be in that class. If you're thinking about this in a movie context, right? This is like the hero's journey and it starts out with epic tragedy. And I think, I think it took a while, but man, was that moment a catalyst clearly is like, well, maybe, maybe I'm just too much uh, of an experimental mind to be in a classroom <laughs> setting. Maybe I need to go and work with barrels and, and stick my head into barrels for the yeah. next 25, 30 years. I think, I think it laid the seed for, I got to get the hell out of this teaching thing, which I think is super interesting. So then you found your way back. You said brewing is interesting. He was getting into, into brewing. He's now brewing at Flossmoor Station. You go and work there. I'm very interested in just, how are your guys' roles? I mean, he was your teacher in eighth grade, so that's, that's a certain kind of relationship as a teacher-student. 
it's similar but different when it's kind of, you know, you're his assistant, it's more mentor, mentee. Talk maybe about how Matt was in those two different situations as kind of somebody you were learning from. Yeah, I guess I can't say that I remember too much about um, the rest of our eighth grade experience. Um, I don't know how many people have very specific memories of eighth grade science beyond, you know, shooting a hole in the ceiling of your, uh, of your middle school. But um, uh, I mean, I always certainly liked him as a teacher and we got along really well. That's definitely why I took him, took another class with him in high school. Uh, but we had a, you know, we had an outside of school relationship after that point too. So it was very different from most teachers that, you know, um, and he and his wife, Jenny were, uh, you know, relatively close to our family. And then when we started working together, um, he had two young kids. And so I got to see the kids grow up. And so our families were pretty close. Um, I remember, you know, we commuted for a while too, when we together, when we worked at Flossmore. So I would drive down to his house and then we would drive in because we both lived relatively far away. But, you know, being there the, the day that his daughter, Ella, you know, first did her first steps, that kind of stuff. So we, we knew each other, you know, as we were pretty close friends, but yeah, on a work situation, um, he had not been brewing for a super uh, long time before he got the gig at Flossmore. He had a couple jobs, um, you know, some some lower level jobs at uh, a regional brewery. And I remember he ran a brew pub that was um, that closed after. I think he uh, he had uh, the brew pub that he was working at had was closing, and that's what gave him the opportunity to work at Flossmore. But um, we had a very uh, collaborative relationship and I think he valued my uh, input, which was really great and very encouraging for me. We had, um, I wouldn't say that we had free reign by any means, but um, we were in a brewing program that had seen a lot of success from the brewer before us, um, a lot of awards. And so that kind of gave us, I guess, a little bit of license to try different things. And then in, in 2006, um, we, so I started working with him in 2005. Um, we won uh, three GBF medals that year, I think. And then in, in 2006, um, we won four GBF medals and small brew pub of the year at Great American Beer Festival. So um, we, you know, we, we had a lot of success and I had a lot of success like immediately in my career. So that um, put me on a, like, I don't, I wouldn't say like a certain trajectory, but certainly the amount of success that most people don't get to have any time in their career, let alone um, immediately after you start doing something. So it, um, it gave me a different perspective for sure. Yeah, it's a, a pretty meteoric rise to be sure. And I like what you said, collaborative kind of relationship. I definitely have noticed that from Matt having uh, done a collaboration beer with him and just in the conversations that we've had, he very much is somebody who likes to externalize the creative process, likes to talk about it, likes to hear other uh, opinions and other options, things like that. So that was pretty clear. I'm interested now, now that you know, you've gone on, he talked a uh, very proud Papa-like of your time, Three Floyd and Solemn Oath, you know, some, some really mainstay breweries in the American craft beer scene. And I'm very interested when you go from mentee to now somebody who is brewing on his own to then potentially mentoring others, 
are there little isms and things that you take that you're like that's that's totally matt like i, I totally got that from matt are there are there any of those moments where you notice that where you're like that's a interesting way that i approach it that i definitely learned from matt i think that um that process of getting input from the people that you work with is definitely something that i um learned and still use to this day um the idea that there's no reason why you would know everything so uh of course you would want the you know the opinion and the input from the people that are around you but also um one of the, there was a situation that we kind of um, walked into and saw at um, at our brewery at Flossmoor, but also at other breweries as well. The idea that um, it having somebody as an assistant or somebody that's working underneath you, it doesn't do any good if you're the only person in the building that knows how to do what you're doing, and it doesn't make your team better to be the only one that can do something. Um, if you can run a brew house, but it, the only reason you know how to run it is because you know that at this point you have to turn this switch or at this point you have to flip this valve, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, it doesn't, you need to have well-rounded people and you need to have critical thinking people um, working with you and working for you. So um, cultivating that kind of critical thinking and then getting that kind of input from the people that work on your team is something that I've tried to carry on. And I think, makes every organization better but it also you know shows the people that work underneath you um that they're valued and that uh, having the, the things that they're learning are really important and that their ideas um are an important contribution to what you're doing day in and day out yeah i think that that speaks to cultivating you said specifically i love that word bringing people up doesn't bring you down when you're in leadership it brings everybody up. And I think that's, it's easy for people sometimes to try to control the process because they are the singular force behind it. You know, a lot of people have that hero slash martyr complex where they're the only one that can save the day. And when something goes bad, they're the, the ultimate victim of it. So I, I like that. That's a great mentality. And especially in craft beer, one of the most collaborative industries I've ever come across. I mean, almost too many collaboration beers. It's, it's amazing how much brewers are looking to collaborate. And uh, it's interesting. I was just at uh, a Big Beers, and uh, Matt wasn't there, but um, uh, Doug was there from Ale Song. And uh, I talked to a beer writer, and he said, I did my recap of beers from 2019. And he's like, a quarter of them were collaboration beers. And I was like, I love that. That's so cool that a quarter of the beers that you had in 2019 that you were, quote, unquote, the best came from collaboration. So I really love to hear that, love that spirit. When you look at what Ailsong is doing now out there with Matt, Doug, Brian, and you know, killing it in Eugene, doing some special stuff, uh, what do you think about that? Is it obvious you just knew, of course, they were gonna crush it because of you know, who Matt is and, and the skill and the, the, the care and attention that he has? What do you think about that when you look at what Ailsong's doing these days? Honestly, I think there's very little that's obvious with um, the craft industry today. I feel like nearly every six months, um, everything gets turned on its head. And I think it's um, really dangerous to take things for granted. And if you just have one person that's really talented or you know a brewer that has historically made really great beers, that's not 
enough to be a recipe for success. So if you are running a successful brewery, it means that you have an extremely well-rounded team, but also um, I think that they have found um, a very good ecosystem to live in. Um, they're doing things a little bit differently. They're, um, they're not necessarily saying, you know, we're going to put all our money in capital or we're all, you know, we're going to buy a whole bunch of equipment. Um, they're, they're obviously making really outstanding beers and I'm extremely excited every time they win another GABF award. Um, we, for the last couple of years, we've sat uh, either together or in close proximity at the uh, award ceremony. And it's, it's always fun to see your friends win, even if you're not bringing home any medals, but um, they're, they're finding a very uh, unique recipe, if you will, for success. And um, of course, Matt's going to be making great beers. Uh, that's not a question, but the ability to um, run a successful business is a lot more than just making good product anymore. So the, the novelty of being a brewery wore off a long time ago for most consumers. I think that's really smart insight. It's very much a balancing act, isn't it? And uh, it's funny because it's, it's that balance of art and science. And uh, I think the fact that Matt is rooted in that science and the fact that they kind of have that, that team there that balances out the business and being able to make smart business decisions while still being artists in their craft, I think is really smart. Andrew, uh, really great talking to you again, man. I almost unmuted the microphone when you were telling that story because I <laughs> wanted people to hear how, how ridiculously loud I was laughing, like to the point of like laughing and coughing at the same time. Great, great story. I was really excited to hear it. And, uh, and the relationship is so interesting, so unique. And I, I, I'm fascinated to hear that. It, it got me thinking about how, who are my teachers in eighth grade? And I couldn't remember. Like I just couldn't remember. And I was like, that's, be really cool if if uh I had a relationship with somebody since I was eighth grade and I, I blew a hole in the uh school that he was teaching at <laughs> would have been would have been a lot of fun to to as we get older to uh reflect on moments like that and, and people like that so I appreciate you take some time to talk with us and uh and excited to see how your guys's relationship continues to flourish within craft beer and beyond thanks for having me always happy to talk about friends Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.